Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, you want to help grow the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. Well, you guys hear me always asking for them, and it's true. I do appreciate all of the comments and reviews that we receive on iTunes. I just got one that I wanted to thank. It looks like if I had a boat 85 left, a welcome counterpart to other great shows like Spit and Chicklets and Barstool, etc. Not a condemnation or indictment of those other shows because they're great too, but this was a welcome difference and a needed change. So just wanted to say thank you for that. I enjoyed reading that and I enjoy reading all the reviews and all the correspondence I have with everybody on the Facebook page. So thank you guys for participating. Welcome back for part two of our interview with Jim McKenzie. And if you are an NHL fight fan, you will love this episode. He talks about fighting everybody from Bob Probert to Sandy McCarthy and several other guys. He also talks about the final game in Winnipeg. And in addition to fighting, he talks about all the superstars in this episode. He talks about Timo Solani, Nikolai Habibulin. So definitely some good stuff. If you enjoyed part one, you'll definitely enjoy part two of this interview. But before we get to the interview, one thing I like to do is if I see something or come across something that I really like, I want to recommend it to everybody. This is just something I came across while I was up in Canada. The Hockey News recently came out with a 2019 business special, the Hockey News Money and Power magazine. I'm not a big reader of the Hockey News. I subscribed to it at one point. But I found that I just didn't have the time to sit and read them. But while I was up in Canada, I came across this issue. It was called the 2019 Business Special, the Hockey News Money and Power. And it's got Gary Bettman on the front cover, as well as Donald Fair. And I really enjoyed this issue. It was great. It has like a little bit of a profile on who some of the more powerful people are on the business side of hockey, as well as a little profile on each owner. And that's something I really hadn't seen before. You hear the owner's names, but you don't really read a lot about them unless you're kind of follow that team. There's really not a lot of information put out about them. But this was like a nice little collection of articles on the different owners and things like that. So if you're into that, if you're into the business side, I highly recommend it. I got it for nine. 99 on a newsstand in Canada. You can probably definitely order it online, I'm sure. It also talks a lot about Gary Bettman and kind of how he's helped the game grow. And I'll say this much about Gary Bettman. You might not like him, but he definitely has made the game grow. And I'll tell you, he ain't going anywhere anytime soon. I just hope that it doesn't lead to another lockout. But what can you do? Anyways, let's get to our interview with Jim McKenzie. Enjoy. You mentioned Hobby Bullen a few minutes ago, and at the end of November, he ended up having a streak of 14 wins in a row. He ended up playing 14 games in a row. Let's talk about Nikolai Hobby Bullen. What kind of goalie was he? He's not your traditional butterfly guy, which was pretty popular at that time. Well, what was different is, and Nikki was a lot, I played with Marty Bordeaux later, and they're, they're different guys. They play different styles, but what was very similar about those two and about a lot of great goalies then, different from now, and it's not the goalie's fault now, but goalies want to see the puck. So, you know, and Nicky was a quiet guy. He didn't say a lot. He was funny because being Russian, you could say anything in English and he understood you. But when he spoke, he spoke really thick Russian accent. Mm-hmm. That's because he was, he was a quiet guy. He didn't talk a lot. You know, he wasn't the guy that filled in the room talking. You know, I played other guys. 
uh, Alex Zamnoff and Igor, these guys talked much more and much better than Nikki because they talked more. You know, it was just practice. But both Nikki and, and Marty were my – the only time Marty would really get fired up, he's a pretty laid-back guy, is it was usually Scott Stevens or Ken Danico. They're getting in the way trying to block a shot. They're trying to help. And he would yell, get out of the way. I want, he, they want to see the shooters. Guys like Nikki, guys like, uh, like Marty, they want to see the shooters. They're like, you know what, go ahead and beat me. Whereas the way it is now with all these bodies in the way – most goalies, that's why so many more goalies have to be big. It's they got to make saves without seeing the puck. They got to set up a certain way with their body and their equipment, and it has to hit them because you can't see through that many bodies. There's just too much. Uh, so it was a different game then. In Nicky's case, he wanted to see the puck, and he was so fast. He was so quick. Um, you know, he anticipated well. He had a great stick uh, in terms of when guys got in close, if they're going to try to deke him or make a play, he had a great poke check, that kind of stuff. So um, really, really, really talented goalie that way. Just a quick correction. That was actually his 14th start in a row. It was not his 14th win in a row. Sorry about that. As we roll into December, you end up playing the Chicago Blackhawks on December 2nd. And you're the first person I've asked this to. You ended up scrapping with Bob Probert. Can you describe to me what it is like to have to go against him? I know a lot of people consider him one of the best ever. You always hear about enforcers or not enforcers, but people that play that role the night before staying up all night. What was it like fighting Bob Probert? I know that's a, a strange question. Uh, you know what? I, I mean, obviously, he was really tough and uh, and really strong. I think the thing that stood out, and this was, uh, and I can't remember who it was I played against the, my first year in the American League, but the attitude was if you got a chance to go up and play against Bob, it was better to play and get, or fight rather, and get beat than to not fight him at all. Like it was, it was for guys that came back to the minors, you know, it was a big deal because he had built himself partly because of how tough he was. Partly because of how good he was in terms of how he could play, but he would fight anybody. Like he would, like he, like there were guys that if you're a young guy coming out of the minors, like if there was nothing going on in the game and you went over there, let's go. They're gonna say no, like beat it. You know, like there's nothing mm-hmm. going on. Why would why, I'm gonna save my hands for tomorrow night when I got to fight somebody I know I have to fight? Kind of thing. He never said no. He never turned down. You know, I'm not saying like the guys would do their job. When, like I said, but it was if it was a dead game and there's nothing going on, you could go over and say, hey, let's go. And if you're some young guy just coming up, maybe it's your only game you're ever going to play. He'd be like, "All right." He took on all comers that way. Now you're, it's you know you're going to pay a price when you fight him. But <laughs> no, absolutely. He was more than he was more than happy to to uh, to give you that that dance. So uh, I think that's probably you know the thing that stood out you know, over the years of watching him and and uh, and fighting him a few times or whatever. But you know I think probably it was he played hard. But he wasn't a dirty player, you know what I mean? Like he wasn't like he as tough as he was. He could have done anything he wanted on the ice. And there are nights I'm sure he, I think he saw him running goalies and stuff like that. I'm sure he got a little sideways or whatever. But you know, for the most part, he went out and played. He played hard, and and he wanted to as much as he could get out and fight. He wanted to score goals too. He wanted to play. And so I, I approached that, especially with most guys, is you know what, you just went out and you played. And if you did your job, then you do your job. That's just the way it was. So um, you always know. Your game, your mind resets to the next game. You play tonight and you play two nights. You're already going through the lineup of who they have, who they might have. Uh, you play that game and you start doing it again for the next one. So You ended up not saving your hands for the second night, though. You ended up using them again. You ended up being in Calgary the next night and fighting Sandy McCarthy. And I know you scrapped with him a few times. Fighting back-to-back, though, does that take its toll on your body? It can. The funny part is, is it, they do come in bunches, though. And it's a, I'm, I'm, this can be the dumbest analogy I can make, but I always say I said that like goal scorers score goals in bunches, and for whatever reason, that's how fights happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the schedule sets up and you play teams that are they're a rival. I don't know if it's a certain guy. I, I, I don't know what it is. But to your point, yeah, you can have a hand that's your knuckles are sore. 
uh, your neck, you know, usually maybe a shoulder, something like that, your back stiff uh, from all the yanking and the grappling and, and that kind of stuff. But you know what, you you get where you come in, depending on who you were. Like we had those those big wax machines or whatever they were, the paraffin machines, and mm-hmm. you dip you dip your hands in there, and and uh, they heat your knuckles and your hands up to try to to warm them up at least a little bit. And if you had to go away, you went. And, and to your point, yeah, it seemed seemed uh, almost every game. I thought when we played with her wherever he was or wherever I was, it seemed Sandy and I fought almost every game. It was kind of funny. Is this the era, and we might be out of this era at this point, but are guys still taking the hacksaws to the helmets at all? Or has that kind of that been past, you know, we're, we're kind of past that at this point? I think we're well past that. And to be mm-hmm. honest, I think there were very few guys, from my understanding, I know, you know, I don't think there were many guys that did that. Um, you know, there were a few guys that wore those, those, and I did short briefly, those Winwell helmets that mm-hmm. had the sharp edges, you know, because those were hard. But to be honest, the helmet was... Uh, the helmet was better than hitting a guy in the head. Like, you know, you knew if you hit a guy in the head that he was going to think about you for the next four or five days when he combed his hair because he's going to have that bump on his, <laughs> on his head or something, which was always funny because we all went through that. But the helmet was softer than the than the skull, right? You you know, you didn't want to hit the skull. You're trying to hit the face or the, the helmet. You're trying to hit the guy in the chin maybe or the nose. But uh, you'd rather hit that helmet than the head. At least that's what I found. I think the head hitting the head was really that much harder but i don't uh, that i played with i never saw anyone do that i certainly never did anything like that and some of that's a little bit urban myth kind of stuff i know it did go on at some some places it did go on absolutely went on but uh in the end it's not going to be enough because guys aren't aiming for your helmet they're they're aiming for your nose on december 15th the winnipeg jets catch fire and smash the edmonton Oilers with a nine goal blitzkrieg you scored their second goal of the season but a good portion of the offense was put up by this finnish guy that we've talked about just a little bit timu solani what made timu so good there was no one thing i got to play with him again in anaheim uh you were never going to meet a greater guy on or off the ice in terms of every day is a good day and he means it when you shake smile shake your hand the whole bet just always in a good mood coming you get beat nine two he's still going to be in a good well you know what we got two he gave up and i want to be better today kind of thing you know and and he meant it and he's going to go out and he's going to try to score goals because that's what he does um, you know, we always used to laugh. We'd be in there and you're almost ready to go out to be three minutes for, for warm up. He's still sitting in the trainer's room talking to them and he'd come in and he might be the first one dressed. Like it was the most, I've never seen anyone get equipment on and get dressed that fast. <laughs> so not um, only is he talented yeah. on the ice, he's fast in the locker room too. It was, yeah, it was just the, and he loved to play. Like he loved to play, but so here's a great analogy. Cause I played with him and, and Paul Korea together in, in, uh, in Anaheim. If, you know, if Paul's Paul's racing and he's being chased by a fast defenseman and he can beat him by two feet because he's going full out, he'll beat him by two feet. If he's getting chased by a defenseman that's slower, he'll beat him by a whole zone. If Tamo's getting chased by the same two guys, he's going to beat them both by two feet. Like, it was the funniest thing. Like, he, you'd watch him. He... Like he, he loved to play. He worked hard. There was nothing wrong with him. He had a great work ethic. He skated as fast as he had to, if that makes sense. Like it does. He was, very, he was very efficient. And that's why if through the neutral zone, he be, he looked like he was shot out of a cannon. He's going so fast. But, you know, a lot of the time on those breakaways or partial breakaways or if he's coming off the wing, he beat the same guy or same two guys that were at different speeds by the same distance just because that's how he played. He could turn it off and turn it on as much as he needed to, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. He had these different gears. Just before the new year on December 28th, GM John Paddock pulled off a trade with the Pittsburgh Penguins, where he sent Neil Wilkinson off to Pittsburgh for veteran defenseman Norm McIver. You know, what were your thoughts on this trade? I, I know that McIver and, and Manson had played together in Edmonton. Do you think they were trying to kind of recreate some of the magic there that those two had had before? 
No, well, you think in Normie's case, and Neil was more of a physical, stay-at-home kind of guy and a bigger body. Normie came in to run, help run the power play. He was ah, an offensive okay. guy. Two different, just two different styles, and it could have been the Edmonton connection as well. I, I at that, and even now, I don't know that I'm smart enough to figure that stuff out. But even then, like when you saw a player, it was, I think it was more okay. We're getting an offensive guy. Here's a guy that can handle the puck, run the power play. Uh, you know, he passes differently. He's certainly going to get the puck pucks up to the forwards differently than, than Neil did. Neil was straight ahead. He was physical. Two different styles is what it was. And uh, uh, But again, like and Neil was a great guy too. But in Normie's case, another great guy they brought in. Great guy for the locker room. January rolls around and the team finishes the month 5-5-1 five, five, and one and are still in playoff contention. But the team has got to be rattled in February when GM John Paddock pulls off another trade. This time he sends Timu Solani off to the Ducks in exchange for Chad Kilger and Oleg Tverdoski. What is everybody's reaction when your leading scorer is traded? Yeah, it wasn't good. It goes back to my point earlier with, uh, you know, what if, right? Mm-hmm. Because we end, up, we end up finishing where we did and playing Detroit. Well, where will we have finished with Tamo Solani? Because I think all it took was one point to move up one or two spots and two points to move up and have home ice. Like it, was, it was such a fine cluster at the bottom. But again, it goes back to, and we'd heard, Tamo's contract was up. They'd already signed Keith to the offer sheet, which was a big front-loaded deal and had money coming. We knew this was a money thing. The team was going to move, and the people making the decisions on that were making money decisions. They weren't making hockey decisions. Fair enough. And and so you looked at it that way, and, and nobody looked at you know, the coach saying, hey, what are you doing? They didn't look at, at John Paddock saying, are you, you, know, are you crazy? Nobody looked at it that way. John went out and got two guys. I think Oleg and, and Chad were both fourth, uh, former first-round picks. So he mm-hmm. went out and got the best he could do with two young guys on an asset that he was told to move, that they were not going to be re-signing this guy. He wasn't getting you know, the contract he deserved, which they, which they acknowledged. There was nobody ever said, oh, he wants too much money. It was never that. It was, we can't afford all these guys. And, uh, you know, whether or not they, they dangled someone else out there like uh, Jamnoff, who's obviously very talented or not, I don't know, and just said, no, we can get more for Tamo. So they made that trade. It was certainly, it, it sucked in the locker room because Tamo's a great guy too. Like you're not just taking away your leading scorer. You're taking a guy that, you know, when you put in, you start in September and you hopefully go through mid-June, you better like the guys you see every day at the rink. You better run a beer. You don't have to, you don't have to be in love with them, but they're, they're guys you're going to see every day and you can never say, oh gosh, not that guy again. Not, what's he talking about? What's he doing or whatever? And when you have a guy like Tamo, it's the exact opposite. You know, you want to see him. You look forward to seeing those guys. You create that environment and that culture. And the good teams that do it, guys will, you know, they're more excited to go to the rink, practice hard when they when they're tired or beat up or get through the the rough patches, so to speak. That was it was just as hard what we lost in the locker room as we did on the ice. Very fair. On February 10th, the Jets traveled to Calgary to play the Flames. The Flames unfortunately would get the best of the Jets that night, but you scrapped not once but twice with Sandy McCarthy that evening. You touched on this. You said that every time you would play Sandy McCarthy, you guys would battle. You were quoted in the Winnipeg Free Press as saying, you considered him one of the toughest people you've ever squared off with. You actually listed him number one, Bob Probert number two, and Dave Brown number three. Why would you put Sandy over Bob and Dave? Probably because we fought every game. I think that's what it, what happened. It was almost like Wiley Coyote and the Sheepdog. That <laughs> you punched the clock. You knew you were going to do it, and um, and you know maybe it was that game or whatever. If you thought the other guy got the better of you, then you came back. If something else happened in the game, then you came back for that second fight. If you know those kinds of things, it was you're always the way the game was. You're always trying to keep the emotion in the game and the momentum on your side, and you're always trying to one up the other team without taking 
penalties unless they were offset you know roughing or a fighting major is just offsetting then you're okay but you know in, in sandy's case and, and especially when i was in winnipeg we seemed to go at it all, you know fair amount seems like he just kept coming and just kept coming and that i oh, imagine yeah. would be just yeah that had to be you had to keep playing that yeah back then you had to keep playing you couldn't you couldn't take a step back you couldn't stop finishing checks you couldn't stop you know the that part of it you couldn't stop obviously taking up for a teammate and sometimes it could be somebody else on your team that's doing something that starts the next fight it's not even you it's not even the guy you're going to fight somebody hits somebody or somebody does something and it's okay let's we're going to settle it and you know not those guys and and off you go again and, and you have another one We've talked about on the ice quite a bit, but let's talk a little bit about off the ice. You're living in Winnipeg, and this was, as you said, pretty close to Saskatchewan where you grew up. How are fans around town, though, starting to react, given that we're getting towards the end of the season and and this is it? I mean, the team is going to be moving at the end of the year. Yeah, as I recall, I think the fan support was was okay, just kind of lukewarmish, maybe good in the first half. It really, I thought, dipped for January. If I'm, I'm looking at it, I just remember a lot of, you know, Especially when they got around the time of the announcement, mm-hmm. and I don't, and I don't blame, certainly don't blame fans. Like, why do you go out and you support a team that's not going to be there, right? It's right. you know, you're leaving, and especially when it's all oh, you're leaving us. Well, you know what? We're not coming to your games. Late in the year, though, I, the fans, it 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 was the thing to do. It was to, they knew it was the last. I don't know how many games, five, ten, twelve. I don't know what you would. You'd have to go back and look, but there, you couldn't. Towards the end, it was it was sold. It was a big deal to go to the games, you know, and certainly in the playoffs. But it was a big deal knowing that. The team was going and, you know, if ever coming back wouldn't be for a long, long time, uh, the fan support, you know, took off. And like I said, the funny part was, even though there weren't a lot of people some nights in the building because of, of the team moving and that, you still went to a restaurant. You still went somewhere where you mm-hmm. talked to people. They still knew what was going on. They still followed the team. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they, they quit following the team and, you know, didn't care anymore or anything like that. They just, you know, they weren't going to spend, and I don't blame them. They're going to spend their time and their hard-earned money going to a game when their team was moving. They're upset about it. And In mid-February, an article appears in the Winnipeg Free Press talking about Alexei Zhamnov. I know that you guys were very close. Zhamnov was in the final year of his contract and was seeking a new long-term contract. And evidently, Ron Salser and John Paddock, Ron Salser, his agent, John Paddock, the GM, were nowhere near, near reaching a new contract. And Jamnoff, evidently, this was really showing in his performance. He'd kind of gone on a little bit of a goal-scoring drought, and he just wasn't happy and, and was actually quoted as saying, it might be just time to trade me. Right. When a guy's like that in the locker room, and I'm not talking about Zhamnov specifically, does that bring the whole team down? Or are guys able to departmentalize things and say, okay, that's a situation he has, but we mean business here, and we that's over there? Well, not in Alex's case, because, he, like again, he's a great guy, and we all knew that. You can't fake whether you're a good guy or not. Mm-hmm. And to your point, the contract, I think, was bothering him. I think the other thing that bothered him, though, is we lost Tamo Solani, right? You know, pretty good guy to pass the puck to if you want you want it to finish. And, you know, so there was a, there was more than one thing that went into it in that regard. And and, and part of it was there were certain teams that were giving out contracts. Keith had just got that big contract. That's what set a lot of it in motion with Tamo and, and Alex is it's not always the guy you give the contract to. If you, you look at Toronto, they gave the contract to Tavares. It's those next two or three guys coming that you're going to have to go, wait a minute, you know, now how do we do this? That's that's what it resets for your whole club. So in Alex's case, you know, I'm sure it did bother him in some ways, but it's also you, the loss of a great player that, that he played with that's going to affect his play as well. But like I said, he was a great guy, and it wasn't – if he's struggling, it wasn't from a lack of effort. It wasn't like he said, well, I'm not going to try. Right. You know, he just he's probably squeezing his stick. He was, you know, thinking about it more than he should have, which is normal. Uh, you know, you just can't get those things out of your head sometimes kind of thing. But 
um, his effort never changed and who he was never changed. And, you know, that I recall, nobody ever held it against him that he struggled because everybody goes through struggles. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and like I said, that's, it's, inter- you know, you go back to a different personality with, with Keith, you know, if it had been Keith and they said, well, you know, we're not sure Keith would have gone out and just his personality, he would have fought five more times, put up 10 more goals and said, you know what, you're going to have to add another zero to the contract, you know, cause that's just kind of his personality. Everybody has a different one. I never really realized, though, that signing one player to a contract kind of creates that game of dominoes where if you sign this player, how does it impact the rest of the team and what's going to happen? And, and, you know, does somebody else want money, that same amount of money the next time? I never really thought of it that way. Well, and look at Tampa. What a great job that Eiserman did, not just collecting that, that group of guys, drafting, developing and whatever trades he made. But you got every single guy to take less than what they're worth. You know, starting with Stamkos, who was a free agent, he could have done what Tavares done and gone somewhere else for bigger money. Headman, uh, Kucherov, like all, there Same isn't a thing, player yeah. there, right? There's there's not many guys that you'd go down their their roster and say, oh, well, he's overpaid. I don't know if there is anyone. That's how great a job he's done. The teams that are gonna, you know, we'll, we'll see what Toronto does. You know, it's a tough spot because they they got some great talented players, but there's other teams if you look around the league, they overpaid one or two guys, and now they have to overpay everyone because it's tough to go back and say we need you to take a little less for the team. Well, what about that guy? You gave well, him, yeah, a you gave him more. everything. Why should I? Yeah, right. Exactly. Why is it coming out of my check? And that's the the dilemma you create. You always create in your own environment. It's one thing if the player looks out and he sees a guy in another team saying, oh, he's making that much. Your GM, if he's a good one, can say, you know what, you're right. Not only is he making more, I would want you over him. But here's why I want you to take less. When when I was in New Jersey, Lou did that with, with Marty. He'd sit down, Marty Roger is the, the best goalie in the game. And you say, you know, can you take, you know, and they'd work out a contract. And Marty knew, well, that money's going to go to some to Scott Stevens, some to Niedermeyer, some to a free agent. Wherever the money's going, it only makes the team better. And next June, we're still playing again. And that's how you keep a good team together. And that's how you keep it good. That's how you do absolutely keep it a good team together in uh, salary cap era. Jamnoff was able to get back on the board in early March. It was the first time he had scored since February. During this game also, though, against the Toronto Maple Leafs, your roommate, Eddie Olchuk, has two goals. Everybody knows Eddie for being on TV, but a lot of people, newer fans especially, don't know about Eddie as a player. Can you tell us anything about Eddie Olchuk? <laughs> I tell you, one of the, one of the best, uh, one of the greatest roommates I ever had. You know, it's funny, you know, all these, the, the way they are, I don't know why they went that way, but they all have their own rooms on the road or whatever. And I, but it was great to have a roommate because you, you, know, you went out for dinner on the road, you're back by whatever time, it was early. You got how many hours to kill? So I don't know these guys play video games or what they do now, but you could sit and laugh or joke or, you know, or if you hung out in one guy's room, you'd have a bunch. Maybe that's what they do. But absolute great roommate, great guy uh, off the ice and in the locker room, but big, strong power forward, great hands in traffic, just a heck of a player and a high compete level, really high compete level. Um, you know, it's funny because he's one of those guys, laugh, joke, laugh, joke, always in a good mood kind of thing. But when it came time to play, he was a very intense guy and he's, you know, he's very, very competitive, you know, which certainly made him successful. But, yeah, gr- absolute great guy. That's awesome to hear. The trade deadline is around the corner, and GM John Paddock says he'd like to add a veteran D-man as the team approaches the final playoff push. Paddock ends up claiming 29-year-old Dallas Eakins off waivers and makes a trade, sending Darren Turcott and a second-round pick for veteran Craig Janney. How was Janney received in the locker room by the rest of the team? I know that it's hard when somebody's kind of coming in at the trade deadline. No, some of the guys I think had known him previously. I'm not sure who. I can't remember. There was some relations, but uh, again, another great guy, really laid back, like quiet guy, but really, really smart guy. And what wasn't to like for guys like Keith or guys that wanted to score, because that's what he loved to do is he was so great through the years, you know, that he 
regardless of who he played with, you know, he got the puck to the goal scorer in, in a great position, and, and uh, he only drove their numbers higher. So uh, great guy off the ice, but certainly a popular guy on the ice. All the guys that wanted to score goals wanted to play with him. It's really the last few weeks of the regular season, and I've always wondered this. I've never asked anyone. How hard is it to get kind of through those last few weeks of the regular season? Is it kind of like the dog days of summer with baseball where it's, okay, we know we have the playoffs coming up. We, we got to get through this period. No, no actually, when the, I think the number is maybe 20, 25. I can't remember exactly where you, you just know you're on the downturn hard. Mm-hmm. I would say the dog days are in late January and in early February where you're like mid-season. You're feeling all the road trips. It's a grind, you know, it's it's all those things. I always found that was the time of year that was the true grind. But when you're getting late in the year, now you can feel it. You can feel the weather getting warmer. You can start looking at the standings going, there's fewer games. Where do we need to be? How do we get there? And it's what's funny is if you've done a good job through the course of year, put yourself in a good position, some of those games don't matter as much. You can play your backup more and rest your starter. You can play, uh, you know, a lot more fourth-line guys, third-line guys, give them more ice time to rest your top guys or even sit your top guys out, that kind of stuff. So the, towards the end, is it really feels like the season's gone. You blink and you go, holy cow, it's February. But you really, when you get down to those last few and the weather's warming up and that's when you really want to play because you know it's getting close to playoff time, it, it, it becomes exciting again. As an athlete, how do you get through those dog days in January, in February? Was there anything that you would do? I think as you get older, you, you learn to, to handle yourself better. You learn there's certain things in terms of keeping things real short. What you used to be able to do, the smart teams did it, is that they had these, <laughs> they were the funniest things, but they had these little bonus structures. Mm-hmm. And they would do five game, they start them at the beginning of the year, and they do a five game bonus package. And what it was was based on you had to win a certain amount of games. You had to give up, you know, if you got you got bonuses for shutouts and one goal wins or, or giving up one goal, giving up two maybe. Uh, if you could string together streaks, this kind of stuff. And it wasn't for a lot of money. It really wasn't. But you kept your team focused on those five-game segments. And as they started to add up, the, the like it, you can't do it anymore because of the salary cap. But they'd come in and they have a little package of cash. Here you go. Here's your bonus. Here's your bonus. And like, each guy, and it was always the same. You didn't get more to, regardless if you were the starting goalie or the backup goal, or anything like it. it was all the same, and it was all based on team stuff. It was not based on who individually did anything. So you played harder, and what it what it did is in November, you're not looking at April. You're not worried about, oh, cow, we got so many games, or anything like that. But it also kept, it kept everybody accountable, you know? So if you're the guy out there, and the score is, you know, score is 5 nothing. oh, we've got this 1-1, one, one. you know what? You still better block the shot, or you still better make the check on that guy. Because we don't want to give up a goal here. We got to keep this shutout. We got to keep this one goal game, you know that kind of stuff. So um, the smart teams, that's the there's and there's still ways to doing it. You can't do it that way anymore. But you you just focus on you try to keep everything focused as small as you can, and not worry about you know a month out, six weeks out, you know something like that, and don't worry about the things you can't control. Was this also the time when they were doing the trips? I know that some teams would do if you won the five games on the road or something like that. They would give you a trip or something along those lines. Was that still during this era? I hadn't heard that one. No, no. But it's certainly, if, like I said, especially late in the year, if you're putting together some good streaks and some good wins, you know, you're going to get an extra day off on the road somewhere and some hopefully somewhere warm. You know, it didn't really matter. But if it was somewhere warm and it's, you know, it's always nice to have that extra day where, all right, we don't have to put our stuff on and go practice. You know, well, you earned it. You know, if you, you hit this, this, and this, you do it. And if you don't, well, we're going to practice. We actually All had right. Greg DeBerge on the show, who was with the 82-83 Washington Capitals. And the team sent them to Vegas 
for after a five-game road swing. They said, if you win four or five, we're going to send you to Vegas. Well, what ended up happening is they had to work out there, so they rented a gym, and the entire team got robbed because oh, they put geez. their stuff in the locker. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's why I was asking if the travel was still something kind of then. And it sounds like it was a little bit, but really it was the money back then. Well, and it wasn't even big money, though. Like, that's the funny part. Like, it, was, it wasn't big money compared to what a lot of guys were making. It was nothing. What it was was just it, it, you kept everybody focused as a group. You didn't have one guy going off going, ah, you know what, I had a couple goals last night, I'm good. Or you didn't have a guy saying, ah, you know, I just don't feel like blocking a shot tonight or something, or at a particular point in the game. You still played hard. Like, you know, if it you was watch incentive. games now, yeah. yeah, you watch games now where teams are up four or five goals, and then they give up a goal or two. You know, I back then you never would have done that. You're, you're still playing for your goalie. Like his, his numbers still matter. He still cares about goals against, right? doesn't matter that you won 7 4 instead of 7 2. Um, but then it did. So, um, no, that's funny. No, the, uh, the only other thing was though, back then there was only like, say LA was the only mm-hmm. farm when I first came in LA, but that was the other carrot they dangled because you flew commercial all the time. So if you went in and won, all right, we'll stay an extra day. We'll practice here. But if you don't, we're back on the plane and, you know, back to wherever cold weather place we're going. They would certainly use that on guys. That definitely makes sense, especially if you're playing in a market like a Winnipeg, where it's minus 10 degrees in the middle of January or something, and you have an opportunity to get to, out to L.A. and play in Malibu or something like that. Yeah, just an extra day to sit sit outside and not wear a snow jacket. It's nothing wrong with that. The Jets wrap up the regular season in April against the L.A. Kings and the Anaheim Mighty Ducks and have the unfortunate fortune of meeting the Detroit Red Wings in the playoffs. And we talked about this Red Wings team. Top to bottom, probably one of the best teams all time. They ended up setting a record for the President's Trophy. This playoff series what was the mentality of the team going into it well we knew what the matchup was we knew and part of it wasn't even so much if you go back and look you say well you know what those two teams weren't that you know they're far apart maybe but not that far apart no it was pretty close on the points but even talent wise if you look at it but the difference was the age and experience in my like they were they were in a different place you know in terms of experience and and who was driving their bus kind of thing you know what i mean like they Mm -hmm. had those guys have been around a little longer and and that kind of stuff. But what stood out the most, if you go and go look at the numbers, was how I mean, Nicky Habibulin uh, stood on his head. Like, he, st- he was just unbelievable. I think he had a 50 or 52 save game the one time. Like, it was unbelievable how great he played in that series. And that Red Wings team was stacked with offense. They had the Russian five. They, and that, that doesn't even include Darren McCarty. That doesn't include Malpe. It doesn't include, you know, that team yes. had so many plays. Tim Taylor was on the fourth line. Tim Taylor was incredible. Yeah. Um, yep. Just a ton of depth. The Winnipeg Jets end up losing in the series, and I feel like we could do an entire episode on the series, so we'll kind of pass through this. What do you remember about that final game in Winnipeg? Norm McIver scored the last goal for the Winnipeg Jets. What do you remember? Well, I think anytime when the playoffs are over, it's just incredible how there's a finale. Like, it just, it ends. Mm-hmm. It's not like, okay, we'll get together, practice, we'll be better next time. It's over. And when it's over, normally it's 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 hard enough. It's over. You, you go for a team dinner because that same group's never going to be together again. Mm-hmm. Guys are going to go on their own way. They're going to get free agents. They're going to do whatever it is. But that was just a whole different world because it's, you know, even if, which wouldn't happen, but even if you kept that whole group together, they're never coming back to Winnipeg, right? So that, I think, was probably the thing that stood out the most is, like, this is it, it. You know, it uh, it was it was really, str- like I said, it was, it was strange in that way because it's, it's normal that the season ends and, and guys are going to go their own way and, and some guys will be back, some won't. But that was a case where nobody's ever going to be back, not for the next year. That had to be a surreal feeling. And I'm sure, I just remember the whiteouts with the fans. And yeah, I can't even imagine when you're getting off the ice, people are, were, I think they were crying in the crowd. It, it must have been surreal. It's the only way I could think probably to maybe yeah. describe it. 
It was, and it's what, like you said, the atmosphere was just incredible in those playoff games. Like, it was just amazing how great the atmosphere was. Rewinding, or I guess fast-forwarding several years, Winnipeg ends up getting a team back. After they left, were you surprised to see that the NHL was going to go Winnipeg 2.0? No, I think what surprised me, and I don't mean this in any way because I just didn't follow, the, one of the biggest reasons they left is they couldn't get an arena. Right. And then a, then a couple of years later, they got an arena. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, and I know things changed politically or, or, or whatever, whatever it was changed, and that's a great thing that it did. Um, it wasn't surprising that they went or they got another team because it's such a passionate fan base, you know, and all that stuff is, uh, you know, it was incredible. For me, it was like, you know, where was this? Like, as I, it, as I recall, maybe I'm wrong. But it just didn't seem like it was that many years later they got the new arena. Maybe they did. Um, but it was like, wow, you didn't have to lose your team. Right. Um, but, again, that's a political thing. And you're talking a lot of money to build an arena, and you're talking a lot of things that go on, a lot of moving parts. And, and I certainly understand all that. But certainly excited for them, um, you know, because, like I said, it was – to, to play there, to, to even go in as a visitor, but to play there and, and those and those late games, the playoff games, I mean, it was just an incredible atmosphere. And you see how well now, especially with uh, the team they have and the talent the team they have, that can they're going to compete for many, many years with what they have um, talent-wise. They get support. They get great support. So it's good for them. I really thought they were going to make a run last year and then this crappy little team called the Las Vegas Golden Knights. <laughs> yeah, that's why they play the games, right? <laughs> I mean, it must have been the scouting department that really did this. Well, the scouting part uh, would tell you it's the coaches and the players. They did a great job. They did an absolute great job of the system is a fun system to play as long as you're willing to work hard because it is a hardworking system, but it's there's no sitting back. There's no... You know, I don't even call it a trap anymore. You don't clog the neutral system. You don't stand you're on the neutral zone. You don't stand on your heels. You're you're on you're on your toes and you got to play. So it's fun to play. And the coaches did a great job with all those guys just saying, "Hey, you're going to determine how much you play, not us. The harder you play and the better you play, the more you're going to play." And every guy bought in. And it didn't matter if you were young emerging guys or if you were veteran guys coming from somewhere else. They they came in and they bought into that. It's like you know what, I shouldn't have. You know, a couple of them was funny because the rules were set up the way they were because. Uh, our owners paid so much for an expansion fee, fee, but, you know, guys that were, you know, David Perron and, and uh, James Neal, they're, you know, they came in with a chip on their shoulder because they're like, well, I can't even believe I was exposed. And I'm not, you know, they weren't unhappy to be there. They're upset with their team. Saying, Absolutely. You know, how do you not protect me? Like, what did I do last year for you? So uh, the whole thing came together that way. Uh, that was awesome. And like I said, it was between the coaches and the players and getting each other on the same page. It was a great. It was a lot of fun to watch uh, as a scout, just to sit there and watch them play, and and to see how far they go and, and and how well they did. So, Jim, I know you're in scouting with the Vegas Golden Knights. What else are you up to now? That's probably the biggest. Like it's that's a full time. Uh, you know, you're on the road traveling, and and uh, it's that's probably a the full time deal. That's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, as my dad tells me on more than one occasion, I'm nearly 50 years old and I still don't have a real job, and he's right. Um, oh, you know, awesome. I get to go. I get to go to a rink every day. I get to watch hockey, and you know, a bad day is when I grumble about you know the referee calling too many penalties because it's too hard to you know. It's much more fun to scout when it's five on five hockey kind of stuff. So, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Enjoyed it. Got a great group of guys to work with, and a great owner and great GM that uh, that I work for. So, great group. I wonder what would have happened if somehow. The Winnipeg Jets were able to hold on to Timu Solani and didn't trade him. Could you imagine Solani not teaming up with Paul Correa in Anaheim and being part of the Phoenix Coyotes? And those Coyotes teams, especially in the late 90s, 
weren't bad. I mean, they had JR down there. They had Rick Tockett. They were pretty deep. Imagine if you added Timu Solani to that team. They would have been pretty unbelievable and definitely would have made a run. Who knows if they would have been able to win the whole thing. But hypothetically, let's say they did. I wonder if Phoenix would have had all these ownership problems. When you think about it, when a team goes far, that's when they develop fans. And there's nothing better than a new team in town that's winning. Might have really alleviated a lot of the problems that Phoenix has had if they would have kept Team Mussolini and they could have gone further. I know this was pretty hypothetical and pretty random, but I was just throwing it out there. Gave some food for thought. Anyways, want to thank everyone for tuning in for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. We'll be back Monday at 8 a.m. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend and thanks for checking us out.